So today I'm launching a three-part sermon series on our statement of faith, and I'll be preaching on three topics. This may sound strange to many of us accustomed to hearing expository preaching here. Most weeks we proceed through the Bible, verse by verse, passage by passage, chapter by chapter. And that's the usual way we teach from the pulpit, and we believe this is the best way to present scriptural truths. But I think revisiting our statement of faith will benefit us in at least three ways. And these three benefits correspond to past, present, and future, and the three benefits also correspond to the three topics we'll cover. First, when it comes to the past, it's good to remind ourselves that God's word is supreme. We're going to look at the very first sentence of our statement of faith, which says, We believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, 66 books in all, to be the verbally inspired word of God, inerrant in the original writings, and that they are of supreme and final authority in faith and life. So today we're going back to the Bible, as so to speak. As we start our 66th year of existence, we ought to remind ourselves that the 66 books of the Bible have the ultimate authority. See how foundational it is for our spiritual growth. 2 Timothy 3.17 says, The word of God is given to us so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Colossians 1.10 reminds us that without the word, we can't be fruitful in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God. Without the word, we won't be able to avoid and expose the unfruitful works of darkness, as Ephesians 5.11 talks about. And that leads us to the second benefit of this sermon series. By studying the ancient word, we can face issues of today. Specifically, I'm going to suggest an addition to our statement of faith that will summarize our position on marriage, family, and gender. The right to add to our statement is restricted to church members, but the discussion leading up to that decision will benefit all of us. I'll call this second sermon, Back Home, a home that God wants us to have. Now, it's it's a daunting task to put it all down succinctly in a few words and in a couple of sentences. From the opposing camp, there are neologism, new words, new acronyms. It seems like every single day there's more words coming out. It's hard to keep up with this fallen world, with this woeful offenses and the unruly evil tongue. Also, there are many passages to consider before settling for a few to include. But I am confident, however, that we have all that we need. We have God's word as a weapon, not only for defense, but also as offense. And cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. With the Bible, we can bring every thought into captivity, the obedience of Christ. So we build on the past, once for all delivered word of God, to face the issues of the present, such as the sexual revolution. Thirdly, I'll look ahead and think about the future. 
I'll say that in more ways than one. And I like to call this back to the future. And I'm saying, first of all, that we should hope in the future return of Jesus and engage in the study of last things, which is called eschatology. And there's another way I want us to think about the future, and that's the future of our church, specifically. I want to ask the current members to consider revising the statement of faith so that we can add to membership believers who hold to different views of the end times. I asked this once a few years ago, and I'm asking again. And just to be crystal clear, I'm still a premillennialist. I assure you that I'll continue to teach and defend premillennial dispensationalism. But I think it's time to allow those who hold to different millennial positions to join us, learn from us, and grow with us. So after the second and third sermons, and after each member had a chance to listen to the sermons, live or recorded, all the members will have a chance to weigh in, respond, and vote for the proposed changes. It's up to us to decide whether we should modify the statement of faith or keep it just the way it is. I'm hoping we can schedule that vote in late October. So that's the introduction to the three-part sermon series. The first one today is not going to require any responsive vote. It's just a reminder. And let me read the first line of the statement again. We believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, 66 books in all, to be the verbally inspired word of God, inerrant in the original writings, and that they are of supreme and final authority faith and life. That should be in the bulletin insert that you have in front of you. And so are the proof passages which should be included. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 16. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And one more, 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1.21. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And here's an outline today, and I'll talk about this one book, which is united in its witness, despite its inner diversity. Next, I want to discuss two truths concerning it, inspiration and inerrancy. Then I'll talk about three rivals to its authority, tradition, reason, and experience. First, let's talk about the oneness of this one book. If you think about it, what we profess to believe is quite remarkable. 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 in the New, spanning about 4,000 years of history, with the gap between the first author Moses and the last author John about 1,500 years. Yet to have them agree on God and his plan of salvation through Christ is nothing short of a miracle. It's only possible because the Lord sovereignly 
and actively superintended the process. He progressively unfolded his grand scheme of salvation, redemption, the mystery hidden from ages and from generations, but now revealed to his saints. We marvel at the unity of the Bible. Now, how do we get to these 66 books specifically? The answer is that we're simply following the lead of Jesus and his apostles. Let's start with our Old Testament of 39 books. By the way, in the time of Jesus, the number was 24. That's because the Jews combined the certain books pairs into one, the Samuels, the Kings, the Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and they combined the 12 minor prophets into one. Now our Lord himself believed in the authority of these books. He warned in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The law refers to the first five books of Moses. Next, the books after them were divided, and they were called former prophets and late latter prophets. The former prophets included authors of certain historical works ranging from Joshua to 2 Kings, while the latter prophets ranged from Isaiah to Malachi. Jesus also said after his resurrection in Luke 24, 44, all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. The Psalms represent the writings of the Old Testament that do not fit in the except the category of the law or the prophets, such as Proverbs, 1 and 2 2 Chronicles, and Esther. Psalm is the fitting representative of these works because it's the longest of them all. So in the first century, the Hebrew Bible, or what we call as the Old Testament, started with Genesis and ended with 2 Chronicles. Our Lord showed familiarity with this order, At one point, Jesus summarized the history of martyrdom as he spoke of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And that's in Matthew 23, 35, and Luke 11 to 51. And so he's talking about the first martyr in Genesis 4 and another martyr late in 2 Chronicles. Like most of his Jewish contemporaries, Jesus endorsed the canon of what we call our Old Testament as authentic and authoritative. Now, there are those who want to add seven more books to the Old Testament. Tobit, Judith, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, also called Ecclesiasticus, and Baruch, along with some extra material in Daniel and Esther. Roman Catholics call these additions deuterocanonical, which means these works are authoritative, and they're only secondary only in the matter of time. Protestants call them apocryphal. They don't even belong in our Bibles. They're not on the same level of authority as, say, Genesis or Isaiah. By adding these, Roman Catholics are not just disagreeing with the Protestant Bible, they'd be in conflict with the Hebrew Bible as well. And there are good reasons both Protestants and Jews 
don't include these works. They're all written after Malachi, the last canonical prophet. They're not cited as authoritative by Jesus and his followers, even if they may be an allusion here or there. So now Roman Catholics and Protestants have different Bibles. Different Bibles mean different authorities. Different authorities mean different religions. Now you may argue with me and say, well, come on, that's, what's the big deal with just seven additional books, and little addition to two more? Isn't it enough that we agree on 66 others? And to answer, let me give you an illustration, and it's based on a historical event, but this little bit I'm about to tell you is, is a fictional. So let's say you're arguing with a Roman Catholic about purgatory. The friend, that friend pulls out his Bible and says, look, if you turn here, you'll see that there's a proof text for purgatory. There's a noble man named Judas who collected money for a sin offering for those who died in a battle, made atonement, and prayed for the dead. Let's say your Old Testament knowledge is really fuzzy and spotty. So you ask your Catholic friend, so where's that passage again? He says, 2 Maccabees 12, 43-45. You don't have your Bible with you, and you don't know better, so you tell him, I'll go home and look at it. Of course, if you have the right Bible at home, you'll look in vain. Now the historical part. When Martin Luther was debating the Catholic Johann Meyer von Eck, he was better prepared, the reformer knew that 2 Maccabees could lend support to purgatory. But in his mind, that book is among the disputed works, secondary in authority. So the doctrine of purgatory was on flimsy grounds. About 30 years later, the Roman Catholic Church recognized these books as canonical at the Council of Trent. John Calvin wrote in a tract that the Roman Catholic leaders now, quote, provide themselves with new supports when they give full authority to the apocryphal books. Out of the second of the Maccabees, they will prove purgatory and the worship of saints. Out of Tobit, satisfactions, exorcisms, and whatnot. From Ecclesiasticus, they will borrow not a little. For from whence could they better draw their dregs? It makes a huge difference whether we include these additions to the Old Testament or not. We have a completely different Bible. Let's move on to the New Testament, and I'll be briefer here. We have 27 works, and they did not get in there by accident. There are four criteria for their inclusion. One, they're all written either by apostles who heard or saw Jesus face to face or by those who are linked, directly linked to the apostles. You can read about that in Hebrews 2, 2 Peter 1, and and, uh, 1 John. So we have Matthew, John, Paul, and Peter as apostles. They stand in support of Mark, Luke, the writer of Hebrews, and the brothers of the Lord. James and Jude. Two, there's a harmony and agreement in the contents of these works. The authors saw each other's works as authoritative, 
in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul cites as scripture, Moses from Deuteronomy 25.4, and Jesus from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. In 2 Peter 3.14-16, Peter considers Paul's letters as part of scriptures. Three, God's people throughout time have recognized these as the authoritative word of God. And four, they have produced transformation in the lives of the saints. So that's the New Testament. We could go on for a while on this, but I'll move on. So with 39 in the Old and 27 in the New, we have the entirety of the Bible, diverse, yet united in its witness. Now, besides the oneness of the Bible, we need to talk about the two truths concerning it, its inspiration and its inerrancy. And let me reread a portion of the sentence from the statement. We believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, 66 books in all, to be the verbally inspired word of God inerrant in the original writings. In that middle part, we see the mention of two truths, inspiration and inerrancy. Let's talk about each. And when we speak of inspiration, we usually speak of verbal and plenary inspiration. When we say verbal in this context, we're not talking about parts of speech, verbs as opposed to nouns, adjective, adverbs, prepositions, etc. We're talking verbal communication as opposed to nonverbal communication. We're saying God communicates by speaking. Unlike the mute idols, God speaks. He spoke the universe into creation. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. It says in Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. The Lord either spoke himself or used the vessel to speak his words, and they have come down to us in written form, thanks to the scribes. And that's why we say all scripture is ultimately given by inspiration of God. Now, what about plenary? And you may have seen that word during a conference. For example, when I last went to Evangelical Theological Society Conference in Denver, I attended a plenary address from the president of the society. That was meant for everyone attending, in contrast to all the breakout sessions in different rooms at different times. The plenary address was given to all. To apply to the Bible, plenary inspiration means that all parts of the Bible are inspired by God. Now, as you can see in the statement, we chose not to use the word plenary. Instead, we chose to specify that all the 66 books are inspired. It's the same idea. Again, 2 Timothy 3.16 is our proof text. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Not some scripture, not just the portions that relate to salvation, not just, not just your favorite stories, all parts, the difficult parts, the controversial parts, the parts that defy our imagination, the Red Sea parting, the sun standing still, the shadow going back 10 degrees, they're all inspired. 
There are many other proof passages for verbal plenary inspiration. Jesus highlights one word in John 10, 35, and adds that scriptures cannot be broken. As we saw in Galatians 3.16, whether a word is singular or plural is also important. In Matthew 5.18, we observe that even the smallest letter or stroke is important. Surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, it's hard to analyze exactly how inspiration works. A proof passage, 2 Peter 1.21, gives us a glimpse, and I'll read it again. Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That word moved may have been a nautical term. As a fisherman who spent lots of time on water, maybe Peter pictured the process of inspiration as a ship driven by the wind. But at the same time, these men were actively engaged and speaking. God worked through these men in a way that did not obscure their unique personalities, as we can tell by their unique vocabulary and style. So these authors were breathing out words, but these words were ultimately breathed out by God. So we have God's revelation in human language. But please remember that in this case, to err is not human. That's because the direct consequence of divine inspiration is inerrancy. I agree with what the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy says in Article 15. We affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy is grounded in the teaching of the Bible about inspiration. Because God is the one who speaks, he doesn't make mistakes. Two sub-points about inerrancy. First, inerrancy doesn't mean that translations today are always perfect. That's why we say the scriptures are inerrant in the original writings. That is the ones written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek and preserved for us throughout time. And here's the second sub-point. There are liberal theologians out there who say that the Bible's accurate on matters of salvation, but not on matters of science or history. Jack Rogers, a professor from Fuller Seminary, once a well-respected school in California, wrote in 1979 that the doctrine of inerrancy was an invention of Protestants after the Reformation. Even today, some would claim that there are historical errors, inaccuracies, and exaggerations in the Bible, but that's okay, the gospel's intact. Others might say Jesus literally rose from the dead on the third day, but the earth cannot be created in six literal days. Adam and Eve are mythological figures. The writers of the Bible were just accommodating themselves to unscientific views of their times. This has huge implications. If we say that God has inspired all the words and all parts of the Bible, yet it contains errors, God ought to be blamed for those errors. And that's ridiculous. If the Lord mixes truth with error, he will be fallible, no better than us. 
even worse, he will be the tempter and the deceiver. If the scriptures contain mistakes, the Lord should be the father of lies. But the Bible says, God is found just when he speaks and blameless when he judges. The Lord abounds in truth, as it says in Exodus 34, 6. And let me tell you about Exodus 34, 6. God's mercy, grace, patience, and goodness, all those attributes that we associate with our salvation and eternal security, all those will be compromised if he's not the God of truth. If he can't be trustworthy in everything, all the promises of God in Christ are not yes, and in him, amen. Instead, the promises would be maybe, not sure, I don't know. So if we take away inerrancy and inspiration, our central message of the gospel would be void, empty, meaningless. But praise God that he is the God of truth. Let God be true, every man a liar. Romans 15, 8 says, Jesus became a servant for the truth of God. to Confirm the promises. This is a good chance for me to tell you about the gospel. Don't walk away today without understanding it. Unlike God and his word, we make mistakes With our tongues, we have practiced deceit. We breathe out violence. The law of the Lord exposes our errors and secret faults. But praise God that he did not leave us this way. He made a promise of a Savior and is faithful to keep it. And the Lord is he who speaks in righteousness, mighty to save. The Father sent his son to the world to rescue us from our sinful choices and consequences. He lived a perfect, flawless life. And yet he went to the cross to die for us, paying for our guilt, receiving the eternal punishment that we deserve. He rose again on the third day and ascended to heaven. And someday he'll return to judge all mankind. If we're going to prepare for that day of judgment, we must repent and believe. Repent as in turn from yourself and your sins that lead you to hell. Believe as in turn to Christ and his righteousness that lead you to heaven. There's nothing you can do to earn or deserve it. It's grace. I can't make this decision for you. Search the scriptures and decide for yourself. Now, for those of you already saved, I hope that reading the Bible is a personal discipline of yours. Reading the Bible should be the discipline of every genuine believer. Even as we mature, we maintain a voracious appetite for the scriptures. Like newborn babes, we desire the pure milk of the word that we may grow thereby, as it says in 1 Peter 2.2. But let me tell you, there are some challenges to the authority of the Bible, and they're not just out there in the liberal circles. They're right here in our hearts. 
That's why we need to remind ourselves that we believe the scriptures are of supreme and final authority in faith and life. And let's talk about three rivals that try to usurp the reign of God's word in our hearts. Their tradition, reason, and experience. Now, I first heard about these three as a teenager as I learned about the four sources of authority in a Christian's life. As I grew older, I learned that this concept is based on what's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It's a brief summary of John Wesley's concept of authority. And I'm not here to defend or refute John Wesley or the Methodists. I just thought that the quadrilateral makes a good observation. Christians in general are truly and dramatically shaped by these four factors. Scriptures, tradition, reason, and experience. So instead of some critical analysis of this quadrilateral, I just want to use it as a sort of a spiritual personality test. How does tradition, reason, and experience, at times at least, hinder you from making scriptures the supreme and final authority in your faith and life? It's a good question to take home, but let me stir up the bee's nest now. Since I grew up in the 90s, I'm going to borrow from the comedian Jeff Boxworthy to help us answer. You know those, you might be a redneck one-liners, so I'm going to use something like that. If you like to say, this is the way we've always done it here, more than here's what the Bible says, you might be a traditionalist. Not that tradition is all bad. But be careful and remember what our Lord said to the Pharisees. It's possible to make the commandment of God of no effect by our tradition. Here's another. If you like to say, I won't believe this holy book of theology because it contradicts my textbook of biology, then you might be a rationalist. Not that reason is all bad. But beware, read again what our brother Noah read earlier in Isaiah 55, verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Scripture's right here. That's higher education. One more. If you like to say what's most important is what I get out of the church, my experience, then you might be an experientialist. Not that experience is all bad. But watch out. Experience is a good teacher, but the Bible is better, right? The Bible teaches us to look beyond our individual preferences. Philippians 2.4, let each of you look out, not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. So I could go on and on with examples. Some of us love high church traditions like stained glass windows, organs, and pews. We've held to certain ways of doing ministry for so long. They make sense and they work. So there's no reason in our minds to change. Or maybe in the past, we've experienced disappointments at other churches. So now we avoid membership commitments in the future. But ask yourself again, is the Bible the supreme and final authority in your faith and life? Will you demote tradition, reason, and experience and honor his word above all? 
Let's make our final song our prayer. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that our hope, our faith, is not on flimsy ground, not on sinking sand, not on the things that are vanity, things that fade away. Lord, we learn through life that even things that we value most, they get ill, they're destroyed by natural disasters. But we're thankful that your word remains forever and that we can trust in it for our salvation. For those of us here who are perhaps going through seasons of doubt or those of us here who have maybe strayed from reading it are no longer studying it for application for holy living, we pray that you will renew in us that sense of reverence for your word. Know that we are hearing from this God of, God of the universe who created all things by his word. And that word reaches us. We ask that you speak, O oh Lord, not only here, but in our devotions, in our study of the word throughout the week. We thank you for your word. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.